Section 5. Market Infrastructure. Section 5.1. The Bitcoin Futures ETFs are state-sponsored pieces of shit. The Bitcoin Futures ETFs that were approved in mid-October are terrible for non-Wall Street investors. Despite nominal fees of just 65 to 85 basis points, it's likely these toxic assets will cost investors closer to 5 to 10% per year in hidden costs due to their structures, Bitcoin's ongoing volatility, and the market's long-term bullish trend. Bloomberg even went so far as to note that crypto's money printing machine has turned back on since funds like ProShares BITO, Venex XBTF, and Valkyrie's BTF are required to roll the underlying Bitcoin futures whose long-dated contracts have consistently traded at higher prices than short-dated contracts. That contango bleed accrues to Wall Street market makers at the direct expense of ETF holders. Arthur Hayes has a great post on how these work in plain English. This future structure is arguably necessary for ETFs that track physical commodities like oil, where it's difficult or impossible to take physical delivery of the underlying assets. Remember last year's havoc when oil futures went negative due to supply chain issues and storage costs? But a similar structure is insane for an asset like Bitcoin, which has both a healthy spot market and a simple mechanism through which investors can custody of physical settled futures, Bitcoin wallets. We know from day one that the new Bitcoin ETFs are losers. We need only look at similarly structured commodity ETFs to see how extreme the underperformance to spot is likely to get. The oil futures ETF USO is down 38% in the past five years compared to a 62% spike in the underlying asset. Raul Paul put it best, saying, Issuing the Bitcoin futures ETF is a good step, but it's basically handing hedge funds a massive arbitrage opportunity as the futures will trade at a large premium in bull phases and they will get to capture those returns. This is the old financial market trick. You now have to add multiple new intermediaries who will all make profits. The ETF provider, clearinghouse, futures broker, administrator, auditor, law firm, CME, and hedge fund ARBs. Wall Street gets richer, retail investors lose. Again, if there is any silver lining here, it is ironically that Raul is right. Wall Street likes products that they can profit from. And a spot ETF, superior as it is, doesn't get those same juices flowing. Like piggies to a trough, could Beto et al. finally get banks in on the crypto action? The basis trade presents free money they can pursue within their tight regulatory confines. I suppose this could be a long-term positive. In the meantime, if anyone aside from the brokers win, it will be retail users at Coinbase, not Beto, BTF, XBTF losers. Ben Thompson also pointed out that at least we now know the net cost of regulation hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contango slash backwardation costs for products that make no sense other than that they are regulatory possible. The lower cost alternative to this madness, the spot ETFs are ones Gary Gensler is unlikely to approve anytime soon, see last chapter, which is a perfect coda to a decade of blundering SEC crypto policy. Public market investors missed 1,000x of appreciation in the Bitcoin markets since the Winklevoss twins first filed their spot ETF application in mid-2013. Now they can also lose 10% a year to Wall Street, with a much lower upside. Investor protection, baby. I predict that the headline costs to these products will all be sub-1%, but their cost net of contract roll will be greater than 5% in 2022, 75% confidence. Section 5.2. Goldman Gary, and the Reg M Redemption. 
One final reason Gary Gensler is a liar and a fraud when it comes to having any interest in protecting retail investors in the crypto markets has to do with Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust slash GBTC product, which continues to be the most misunderstood product in crypto. I will do my best to briefly explain how it works, but the explanation could easily be 15 pages. The information about the trusts are all public, but you need to be sophisticated to even know what you're looking at in the filings. First, you need to understand the org chart. 1. GBTC is the public share float of the spot-based Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. 2. The trust holds $40 billion of Bitcoin for a 2% annual fee. 3. Grayscale is the sponsor of the trust and sponsors a family of similar trusts. 4. Digital Currency Group is the parent company, 100% owner of Grayscale. Then you need to understand the difference between Grayscale's product and a normal ETF. A normal spot-based commodity ETF, like Gold's GLD, has authorized participants or brokers that create and redeem baskets of shares by trading the underlying asset and the shares they represent until price per share equals the underlying net asset value, or NAV. If there's more demand for the ETF than the underlying intraday, the share price greater than NAV dynamic attracts brokers to buy Bitcoin, create new shares by sending that Bitcoin to the trust vehicle, then sell the newly created shares on the open market. When share prices are less than NAV, the reverse happens, and the broker will buy shares to redeem them with the trust and get their Bitcoin back. These creations and redemptions take place daily to ensure the market price of the ETF reflects the underlying assets less the sponsor's management fees. The Grayscale trusts aren't like that. The GBTC shares you see today have come to market through a loophole and securities laws that allow Grayscale's authorized participant, yet another DCG affiliate, Genesis Global Trading, to raise money for its trust from accredited investors, who can then flip the newly created GBTC shares on the public markets, OTC markets, not New York Stock Exchange, after a six-month seasoning period through something called Rule 144. I've called this quasi-ETF or side-door ETF or Faustian bargain in the past. It looks like an ETF, but for the fact that, one, the public float hits the OTC markets in slow motion after the six-month lag, and two, there's no redemption mechanism to get your Bitcoin back by converting the underlying shares. That last point is important, as we'll see in a second. It's a one-way funds flow. The Rule 144 loophole paved the way for accredited investors to pile into Grayscale's trusts early, then flip them to retail for mega premiums after the lockup period. For a long time, demand for publicly traded Bitcoin vehicles exceeded supply, and GBTC shares were the only game in town while the SEC dragged its feet on other ETF proposals. This persistent public market premium was a great bootstrapping mechanism for Grayscale's trust, and early investors made a staggering amount of money off the spread, billions in total at the expense of retail and with the implicit blessing of the SEC. The GBTC premium lasted a lot longer than most people expected, but as Bitcoin got much easier to access as an institutional investor, the overcrowded Grayscale trade flipped negative. Newly created shares flooded the market in Q1, and we now have a persistent deep discount. Remember, if this were an actual ETF, the premium wouldn't have existed and accredited investors wouldn't have been able to dump on the retail investors for years. Strike one, SEC. 
It would also mean that the trust's massive and now likely permanent discount to NAV would close overnight as investors would choose to redeem GBTC shares for Bitcoin in the trusts that are 15% more valuable in the spot market and would rationally do so until the NAV gap closed. Commissioner's refusal to approve a spot ETF continues to punish investors who are stuck waiting for a return to NAV that may never come and must now eat an annual fee of 2% from Grayscale. Strike to SEC. There is a third path and an escape hatch for Grayscale investors, though. While Grayscale can't run a continuous offering of new shares and offer a redemption program concurrently, they were slapped for doing so in 2016 by the SEC, they can pursue something called Reg M Redemptions now that they have paused new share creations amidst the GBTC discount. The issue, and you're correct if you've anticipated a wild swing and a miss, strike three for the SEC here, is that Grayscale can pursue this at any time, but has no obligation to pursue Reg M Redemptions, especially for as long as they are also pursuing an ETF conversion, which they did the second the futures-based ETFs were approved in October. Grayscale is effectively saying a couple of things that are true, but not the whole truth. We got in trouble for a Reg M Redemption program in 2016, which is why we suspended it, and liquidity is available for GBTC investors in the public markets, and we are trying to close the NAV gap by converting the trust to an ETF. Those are true, and they're the party line, but the whole truth is that a redemption program is possible, but they choose not to pursue it. Grayscale views their assets under management as operating leverage versus the SEC and its EFT conversion plot, but more importantly, they view it as a billion-dollar guarantee gravy train and permanent capital given the BITS current Hotel California structure. Grayscale, as the BITS sponsor, is the ultimate decision-maker when it comes to whether they 1. file for an ETF conversion, which they did, 2. pursue a Reg M redemption program, which they won't, and 3. liquidates its trusts. Yeah, right. In the meantime, every DCG Grayscale GBTC buyback isn't an indication of confidence per se, so much as it is a money movement from one pocket to the other to avoid shareholder ire. They have no incentive whatsoever to allow redemptions. Can you blame them? The SEC is asleep at the wheel here, and Gensler is complicit in allowing the 6 to $10 billion gap between GBTC and the trust's NAV to persist. Grayscale pursues an ETF they know won't come from this SEC with 0% urgency. We won't do redemptions until the SEC approves an ETF is a smart hostage negotiation when they are dealing with an optics-oriented careerist like Gensler who will face zero critical backlash from the press for his stonewalling. This shit is too complicated to rile people up, so investors lose while Gensler and Grayscale win. That brings us to the frequent news this year from DCG and their announcements regarding GBTC repurchase authorizations. At writing, they approved $1 billion, though they had only executed $400 million worth of transactions. This isn't heroism. It's a riskless option. Unwriting investors think DCG can close the NAV gap. Impossible given the size of the trust, but what's really happening is that either A, the ETF converts, and the GBTC comes back to par. DCG realizes GBTC gains. B, the assets under management sits there and DCG pays itself through Grayscale the 2% management fee on its GBTC shares. Or C, they do finally roll out a Reg M redemption program or liquidate the bit and get their Bitcoin back at par. 
After I wrote about this last month, one lawyer pointed out that these situations get into court all the time. Definitely possible, especially if Grayscale continues to collect fees while doing nothing about the discount. Remember, they have a fiduciary duty to the trust. Okay, fine. But remember, they can argue that they are taking steps to close the gap via backups and the ETF application. They may be untouchable in that regard. But I think it's fair for people to warn newer investors about the toxicity of Grayscale's newer trusts, which tend to perform even worse. Prediction? Barry Silbert is Gary Gensler's daddy. 100% confidence. Grayscale wins and continues to make a mockery of the SEC. Investors lose as GBTC trades at an average 15% plus discount to NAV, 75% confidence, with no Reg M program or ETF, 95% confidence. Further evidence that Barry is a master at the secondary market and its information and legal asymmetries is DCG's recent $10 billion valuation, which feels like a 60 to 70% discount for a company throwing off nearly $1 billion in annual EBITDA with billions on its balance sheet. Section 5.3, Lender Reserves. This hurts me to write, but stablecoin and lending product regulations would be a good thing for the industry. We sort of lost our high ground once we started to see some of the asset stablecoin issuers and lenders were warehousing on balance sheet this year, including grayscale shares. Tether may hold too much commercial paper, see later this chapter, but BlockFi's assets might be more eye-opening. I'll pick on them, A, because I have assets there, so I think it's safe. B, they are in the regulatory crosshairs already, so they are relevant. C, they got caught with their pants down on a bad prop trade, so you can see this isn't just theoretical. D, they are very well capitalized, so insolvency suggestions are not credible. And E, this is all public information. Here's what we know about BlockFi's Q1. The Block reported in January that BlockFi was just shy of $100 million in revenue in 2020 with $30 million coming from GBTC premiums in the Grayscale's trade and 55 from institutional lending. BlockFi was one of two firms alongside Three Arrows Capital who slammed the Grayscale trade hard enough to trigger 13G disclosures with the SEC. By February 11th, BlockFi sat at $1.7 billion of GBTC shares and an unrealized $150 million gain. Days later, GBTC prices began a two-week 25% nuke versus NAV. Whatever exact amount BlockFi failed to unwind during that time period immediately flipped to a $100 to $150 million unrealized loss. Ouch. The company announced a $350 million Series D just weeks later. Coincidence or a solvency booster? I think the former, but the announcement certainly seems to have been fast-tracked. Was BlockFi largely responsible for finally breaking the grayscale trade? Well, here's a plausible explanation for what happened in February. As the GBTC premium narrowed and an opportunity cost arose, the BlockFi risk team would have naturally wanted to cut down the position. Given BlockFi's outsized exposure, remember, this liability would only grow with an appreciating Bitcoin price. Unwinding their stake could have caused a vicious sell-off below the NAV-Mendoza line until the BlockFi risk team felt comfortable warehousing the remaining underwater position and implementing a strategy to write off the remainder of the bad investment. Indeed, by June 24th, BlockFi had gotten out of 45% of its position, which means they may still own upwards of a billion dollars worth of underwater GBTC, which they hold at a 10% unrealized loss plus the 2% grayscale management fee plus BlockFi's depositor interest rates. It's okay. 
BlockFi will live and their balance sheet can absorb the shock even if the position gets fully unwound at a loss. Perhaps BlockFi is already out of the trade entirely by now. I doubt it. And or it has more than made up for the bad bet with its other DeFi bets and institutional lending. The fact remains, though, that it took financial disclosures on third-party filings to highlight that this was even a potential risk to what is now a $10 billion-plus crypto lender with 500k retail clients. It also highlights the challenge GBTC will face in rallying back to NAV. Whales will either eat the 2% and pray for an ETF approval or sell bounces above, say, 90% of NAV. Now that we know about the sausage factory, it might be somewhat charitable to say that today's crypto lending products resemble money market funds. BlockFi's at least are much riskier, which doesn't make lending and stablecoin regulations look so crazy after all. Matt Levine had the best write-up on the issue with Coinbase Lend and nailed the punchline, saying, Look, I get it. From the perspective of Coinbase and its customers, and frankly most of the normal people interested in crypto, people would like to lend their bitcoins. It doesn't feel like a security. It's kind of annoying and archaic that a 1946 Supreme Court case says that it is, but also this isn't a stock or bond or note or investment contract or a personal IOU or syndicated loan. It's a fully collateralized bank account with a 100% reserve ratio. Banks hold your money, use it to fund loans, pay you interest, pay you back even if the loans default. The whole thing is seamless to you, etc. It's just a bank account. As I said in the last chapter, we have to hold the high ground. It's a bit silly to warehouse a ton of risk on your balance sheet that may cause major solvency issues, never disclose the composition of your reserves or lending book, and then expect no response from policymakers. We need proof of reserves for lenders and custodians. I think I covered this in the last section, but I think the crypto lenders will face tough regulations this year. The B2B desks, essentially securities lenders, will be just fine but the retail lending players might not be welcome in the U.S. by year-end. 5.4. CFI versus TradeFi. I still don't think people really get it. Banks, legacy trading desks, major asset managers, they can all enter crypto, and probably will sooner rather than later with a variety of offerings, but the game is basically over. Short of indiscriminate crackdowns, record-setting M&A deals, or something similar, Crypto's CFI firms have won and will not cede their leads back to Wall Street. The same regulatory risks that loom over the industry keep TradeFi organizations on the sideline, handicapping them from developing the institutional knowledge and human capital base to compete long-term in regulated crypto financial services. Sure, there will be more crypto innovation groups, crypto executive officers, and press releases. God, wait until you see the press releases. But crypto companies are simply bigger, faster, more aggressive, and unshackled by the distractions of maintaining 50-year-old parallel trade fi infrastructure. The talent pool only moves in one direction, too, into crypto, where we're still early in the multi-decade migration of financial, technical, and creative talent to crypto. Investors are not going to Goldman for OTC borrow before they go Genesis, which has originated $100 billion in loans in less than 2.5 years. They aren't opting for CME over Binance or FTX futures. They aren't even looking at Fidelity before they look at Coinbase Institutional, which now counts 10 of the top 100 hedge funds as customers. And Fidelity is arguably the best in class among legacy players when it comes to crypto innovation. The FDIC will use Anchorage to manage orderly bank liquidations. It's over. We're not stuck waiting for the institutions to arrive. 
were the barbarians at the gates eating all of their lunch. Nom nom nom, I write with satisfaction as I think of every slicked hair, blockchain, not Bitcoin, 2015, vintage banker with each one of my victorious keystrokes. A message to TradeFi insurgents, don't let my ribbing discourage you. It's smart to help us bring crypto into your organizations. You'll be an internal hero, you'll get a big bonus, then you'll get a promotion when you decide to leave and join a crypto company. Remember, you're auditioning for your next role in DeFi. Section 5.5, Sex Ed. Decentralized exchange growth has been nuts. These protocols often offer a better user experience, asset coverage, accessibility than their centralized counterparts, and they've done a good job in sopping up liquidity from global exchange also RANs. Chain analysis says 200 SECs shuttered year over year down to 650. The DEX momentum will persist for long tail assets and new synthetic instruments alike as decentralized markets that build off open source code will be broader and more dynamic than their centralized counterparts by definition. We have a whole chapter dedicated to DeFi and we'll chat more about DEXs in chapter 7. For now, we'll stick to crypto's mammoth centralized exchanges. Today, there are basically three tiers. The top three god-tier exchanges are Coinbase, Binance, and FTX, where primacy will likely come down to new products and regulatory wins. Then there's Kraken, Yubi, Qcoin, Gemini, OKX, and Bitfinex in the behind-the-volumes camp, but could still dominate if any of the top three fall or stall. There will likely be a healthy dynamic among this group where market share ebbs and flows. There will also be regional winners. Upbit in Korea, Bitflyer in Japan, Bitso in Latam, Coinswitch Cuba in India, Luno in Africa, etc. I'm only going to cover the top three exchanges here. If that's disappointing, then you can write your own end-of-year book. Coinbase has analyst coverage now if you want to learn more about them in particular. I touched on some of their advantages in the Emily Choi section too. Staggering growth, first mover advantage, free marketing from their status as the first crypto IPO, liquid equity capital with which they can splash the pot on additional accretive acquisitions they've proven to be highly lucrative given their installed user base, steadiest regulatory positioning out of the top exchanges today. But it's their Web3 initiatives that may be most interesting. I'm keeping an eye on their Coinbase wallet and DAO plans, not to mention their upcoming NFT marketplace. Binance is the most interesting player, not to mention the largest out of the big three. It's arguably too big to fail, but they certainly have their work cut out to clean up their regulatory image. They've been getting chased around the world for the past year or so, and CZ sounds like a guy who's finally ready to settle down after a good run as jurisdictional bachelor. My bet is that Binance probably needs to take on a government as an investor at this point. Singapore, maybe? They are so large that regulatory remediations may need to happen via treaty versus private negotiations. The regulatory hassles have kept the company's performance somewhat under the radar, if that's possible. Everyone has been talking about Coinbase and FTX this year, while the BNB token, a shadow stake in just 20% of the exchange's profits, crossed $100 billion in market cap for the first time this fall. Don't actually me, I know. If you want to know where the puck is heading, though, I'll highlight FTX. A lot of ink has been spilt writing about Sam Bankman-Fried this year. Chaotic good. Wealthiest person under 30, effective altruist, size chat impersonator. To be honest, it's well-deserved. 
FTX moves at an otherworldly speed and has built a $25 billion business in less than three years with under 100 employees. They're the fastest growing company of all time out of Coinbase, Stripe, and even Binance. And they did it in the ruthlessly competitive crypto exchange market. Here's how they did it in just 10 easy steps. Number one, leverage capital and street cred from being one of the top traders on BitMEX. Number two, Make the markets during FTX's startup period with your sister prop desk. Number three, build product for traders by traders, things like leverage tokens and tokenized stocks. Number four, use a token to incentivize early customer acquisition since switching costs are high. Number five, buy the largest mobile onboarding platform available in Blockfolio. Number six, become the second largest donor in the world to the future president's campaign. Number seven, spend a staggering $500 million on sports marketing to build brand awareness. Number eight, pick the right layer one blockchain to help scale a DeFi ecosystem around Solana. Number nine, use that to become a god for early Bitcoiners to rally around outside of Ethereum. Number 10, Raise eye-popping amounts of money in memeable increments. If Web3 makes everyone an investor, then FTX et al. wants to own the internet scale exchange. At least one of them will realize that vision. By 2030, we'll see a trillion-dollar crypto exchange. Section 5.6. Crypto Securities and ILOs. Still waiting for that rat Gensler to get his team to approve any of the crypto exchange's in-house ATSs rather than continuing to slander its applicants. In the meantime, there's only one digital securities platform worth noting, Republic Crypto. Fresh off $150 million Series B, Republic looks interested in building a secondary trading platform for digital securities, something that might become more widely interesting as private company valuations soar to record heights and the accredited-only secondary trading process gets standardized. They're also worth watching as they may be a primary beneficiary in doomsday scenarios where most crypto projects are deemed securities. CEO Kendrick Gwynn hasn't shied away from that reality, saying, Everything that Republic does, everything we touch, we treat them as securities by and large and fit them under the existing framework of U.S. securities law. Still, it's another New Republic product that I'm more interested in. Initial litigation offerings. If the threat to crypto comes primarily from FSOC regulators, then creating a fund to relentlessly counterattack via lawsuits may be a more productive use of capital than campaign financing. Section 5.7. Bag holders and stakers. Custody is where the rubber meets the road between crypto and TradeFi. Taking custody of customer funds opens the door for staking, lending, market making, governance participation, and more. It's the one obvious area that crypto companies should be and are regulated. Most of the M&A activity we'll see among TradeFi entrants to crypto in the coming years will be in custody, and most of the investors and network participants we'll see enter the crypto economy will choose hosted custody over self-custody for safety and security. Dedicated custodians like Anchorage, BitGo, Fireblocks, and Ledger have all recently hit unicorn status as traditional fund interest has exploded. Coinbase Cloud, the Bison Trails infrastructure, shows how insanely lucrative the hosted node and staking services market is for these groups. 
They raked in $80 million in Q3 staking revenue alone, and other infrastructures like Block Daemon, Figment, and Alchemy have raised massive sums to follow suit. The risks of concentrated custody are lower than they may appear at first glance. Coinbase holds 10% of all outstanding Bitcoin, but half of that is due to its role as Grayscale's Bitcoin trust custodian. By comparison, Ledger is estimated to hold 15% of all crypto. So the assets under self-custody via one company's hardware wallets eclipses the largest centralized exchange's assets under custody by a fair margin. At scale, I guess we'll probably see a 50-50 split where savers keep large investments in custodial or semi-custodial multi-sig accounts and retain ownership over their more dynamic liquid holdings in something resembling a checking account. Section 5.8. CoinList, a global token issuance platform, except in the U.S. and North Korea. I know you're thinking, stop, stop, he's already dead when it comes to Gary Gensler and his SEC but I'm going to continue my assault until he and his minions stop attacking innovators in crypto and tell the truth about the underlying market. They've crossed a line from being naive to intentionally misleading, and someone needs to call out the lies. Up next, ICOs and their historical performance. Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw actively campaigned against the Pierce Safe Harbor recently. She claimed that the 2017 ICO euphoria would have been even worse if a safe harbor had been in effect. ICOs and other digital asset offerings raised billions from investors, but most never delivered on their promises she warned without evidence. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt, though. It's a sensible thesis as most startups also fail. How did the markets do as a whole? Well, token sales have actually performed better as a class of investment than the S&P by more than an order of magnitude. Token sales have raised about $20 billion all time. Binance, or BNB, alone has delivered a 5x on that entire initial investment. Here's the actual math for the seven token selling projects in the top 15 by market cap. BNB comes in with a valuation of $109 billion, Sol at $72 billion, ADA at $68 billion, Polkadot at $46 billion, Luna at $23 billion, AVAX at $21 billion, and Link at $15 billion. That's $350 billion of value creation on just $500 million of invested capital, more than enough to offset all the losers nearly 20x over by themselves. And that excludes Ethereum's $550 billion of market value created on just $18 million in crowd sale proceeds in 2014. For the token sales that underperformed and or didn't deliver at all and or were complete scams, a good safe harbor would have turned these tenuous unregistered security cases into slam-dunk fraud cases. It's nonsense to claim that tokens as a class have been bad for investors. If anything, they serve as an indictment of the SEC. Investors want and need alternatives to today's stock market. Participation in the token economy with just about any level of diversification has historically minted winners. Take Mason's recent analysis of coinless sales, which also makes a mockery of Crenshaw's claims. While the U.S. is listed next to North Korea in the list of excluded countries for participation in most of coinless sales, here's how $100 invested across each of their first 20 sales would have actually performed. Solana would have gained 1,218% ETH return. Flow would have gained 541% ETH return. Filecoin would have gained 1,195% ETH return. Near would have gained 658% ETH return. 
Mina would have gained 43% ETH return. Internet Computer would have gained 377% ETH return. Blockstack, 517% ETH return. Cello, 658% ETH return. Origin, 377% ETH return. Ocean, 2,463% ETH return. Casper, 90% ETH return. Affinity, 7% ETH return. Centrifuge, the only negative percentage at negative 427% ETH return. Covalent, 43% ETH return. Kadena, 1,115% ETH return. Vega, Swarm, and Human, all at 7% ETH return. Nervos at 1,461% ETH return. Algorand at 948% ETH return. And Props at 517% ETH return. The only question in this analysis was whether Coinless Investments outperformed ETH as an investment, not whether it delivered a positive return. In the period evaluated, only two tokens were trading under the Coinless selling price. One of them, Props, was effectively destroyed as their decision to comply with SEC reporting and securities restrictions under Reg A made their network unusable. The other came with an embedded put option for coinless buyers. If you had invested blindly with $100 across each coinless sale, you'd have deployed $2,000 and returned $150,000 with a 100% hit rate aside from the SEC sanctioned project. It's disgusting, and current SEC leadership deserves your wrath. To add insult to injury, CoinList, which was spun out of AngelList, a company that helped author the Jobs Act in an attempt to loosen existing securities laws, recently raised $100 million at a $1.5 billion valuation despite being unable to sell to U.S. investors. The infrastructure is there to facilitate compliant, user-friendly, fair, long-term oriented network decentralizing token sales on American platforms. The SEC is just grossly negligent. Section 5.9, Reg Tech. If you want to enter the crypto fray as an investor or contributor, but also want to feel like you're a sheriff in the Wild West working to bring order to the frontier, then crypto's Reg Tech plays are a good place to start. Crypto's Reg Tech leaders are the front lines of our defense, and they are very often a bridge to the more reasonable, good faith regulators on the other side of the aisle. Remember, A16Z's Katie Hahn was a federal prosecutor before she joined Coinbase's board. Public blockchains are open to inspection by their nature, so it's a good thing that these companies help authorities with probable cause nab money launderers, tax evaders, and terrorists. Strong compliance tools help bring credibility to our claim that public blockchains make cryptocurrencies terrible vehicles for crime. They are FUDBusters. It was indeed a banner year for AML solutions like Chain Analysis, $100 million from Cotu, Benchmark, Excel at a $4 billion valuation, Elliptic, $60 million from Evolution and SoftBank, and CypherTrace, $27 million from ThirdPoint. Same with tax solutions as TaxBit leapt into the Unicorn Club, $130 million from Paradigm, Insight, and Tiger Global. Crypto Data and Governance Platform, SEC Killer, and Superhero Factory Masari also had a good year, raised $21 million from .72 Ventures and all of the major U.S. crypto exchanges. You don't need to be a complete renegade to have some fun building in crypto. By the way, we're hiring for dozens of open roles. If you're a developer that likes data infrastructure and DAO governance tools and you want to stick it to the SEC, you should check out our careers page. 
We also made CB Insights FinTech 250, one of the only non-unicorns to make it on the list. You know what that means. Section 5.10, Payments Innovation. Once again, this section in and of itself could be a full report. I'm going to leave a lot out or kick it down a level to the stablecoin section for further color where appropriate. To me, the most exciting trends in crypto payments are probably obvious. Stablecoins have exploded. Settlement volumes on both Bitcoin and Ethereum are up by multiple orders of magnitude in the past couple of years. And every time I send a USDC payment to fund an investment, I weep tears of joy that I don't have to initiate a wire on a banking interface that looks like it was designed by someone who still plays Frogger in their spare time. These are obvious. I'd rather talk about all the unique upgrades we've seen so far this year. In payroll integrations, super fluid streaming payments, quadratic payouts, and integrations with new customers like charities, etc. I'm going to shill my angel bags here because none of these companies have tokens and they're all killer payments infrastructure businesses that have seen volumes go vertical this year. Payroll, Juno. I have been banging the drum about the need for crypto payroll solutions for years, tools that streamline the integrations with big payroll providers and make it seamless for employees to receive crypto as salary while also satisfying tax compliance needs. We're using Juno for our crypto payroll, and I even recommended it to the Miami mayor. How's that for investor value add? Streaming payments. Super fluid. I love streaming payments. Back in 2015, we were the first investors in Streamium, a Bitcoin streaming payments company that worked sort of like Lightning before Lightning Network. Streamium pivoted and became Open Zeppelin. On Bitcoin today, a similar solution exists with Strike. Most interested in streaming payment options on Ethereum. Superfluid can handle subscriptions, salaries, rewards, or any other stream of value with continuous real-time settlement. Multicoin calls it networked cash flow. Quadratic payments. Gitcoin. Okay, Gitcoin has a token, and I was unfortunately not an early angel investor. But they are the first major project to incorporate quadratic payments, which is a killer crypto primitive. Gitcoin powers public goods, funding programs that are scalable, community vote on proposals versus committees, open for debate, and democratic without being plutocratic. This is how DAO treasuries will ultimately get unlocked effectively at scale. Charitable giving, the giving block. Before crypto, I started a charitable payments company. When I first entered the space, I thought about pivoting the concept to apply to crypto assets. It was too early, but my thesis remained intact. Donating appreciated crypto assets offer givers a double benefit. You avoid capital gains taxes on the donated property, and you get to write off the full liquid value of the gift. The Giving Block has crushed it this year by bringing this idea mainstream. They'll process $100 million plus in donations and are just getting started. Emerging Markets Value We still take stable currencies for granted in most of the developed world. That may be slowly changing with inflation at 6%, but it has been a fact of life for those in emerging markets like Venezuela who have experienced catastrophic currency crises and political upheaval. I'd like to continue betting on the top remittance platforms that bring payment stability to crisis areas regardless of their physical location using stablecoins. Again, I'm not doing justice to everything that has happened this year in crypto payments. It's just too big. Coinbase announced a partnership with Visa and rolled out its Coinbase card. BlockFi announced a Bitcoin rewards credit card. 
Stripe is hiring a crypto team and added Paradigm co-founder Matt Huang to its board. MasterCard partnered with Backed. Visa leaned into the punk rocket ethos by buying a punk. Ramp raised at $300 million. MoonPay raised at $3.4 billion plus. It's all too bullish. I can't take it. Don't miss your chance to own one of Masari's first NFTs from the Masari 2022 Theses Collection. Each unique piece of crypto art tells the story of the year behind us and the year ahead. Check out the full collection designed by pop surrealist artist GN on OpenSea. Section 5.11, the national security case for crypto dollars. One of the things that got me into Bitcoin in 2013 was a big short thesis on U.S. government competence. I thought our national leadership, largely due to the accelerating degradation of our two-party system and media, would lack the capacity to address structural challenges in any meaningful way, and that even if they did, they would do so with the efficiency of drunks. That thesis has been proven largely correct. Political polarization has gotten much worse. Deficits are at World War II levels because no one can agree on a responsible budget, and with interest rates near zero, we've opted to monetize our debts at massive scale. Some 40% of USD that has ever entered circulation was printed since the beginning of 2020. All that has led to the 500x plus returns on my initial short thesis via a Bitcoin long. So it may surprise you to know that I'm actually very long the US dollar for national security reasons and because I happen to like this country, even if I resent many of its leaders. Namely, I believe one of the only ways out of our current mess is to leverage the remaining time we have wielding the globe's dominant reserve currency and begin to export crypto dollars, a digital cash instrument that has the full faith and credit of the U.S. Treasury but can trade pseudonymously would be amazing, and attract global counterparties. A closed-loop Federal Reserve maintained central bank digital currency dystopian overreach, would likely fail, as no nation-state in its right mind would invite that sort of granular foreign oversight into its banking system. Why should policymakers embrace responsibly regulated stablecoins? A16Z put it best, saying, The existing, thriving ecosystem of private USD-denominated stablecoins can help the U.S. act quickly to win the emerging geopolitical arms race in financial innovation. The United States should condemn the surveillance authoritarianism embodied in China's digital renminbi project, not attempt to imitate it. American policymakers should be cautious about building massive centralized payments infrastructure. Doing so would impose unprecedented demands on the government's limited capacity to stand up critical technology platforms, present significant privacy risks, and create an immensely attractive target for attackers. Regulated stablecoins can coexist with more limited CBDCs and add resilience to our future financial system by removing a single point of failure. I agree, and I believe that the only path to keeping the USD as the world's preferred reserve currency is for the U.S. to embrace crypto. As Bitcoin's liquidity increases and financial institutions and foreign governments hedge against U.S. credit worthiness, we could see Bitcoin and other forms of crypto replace their reserves versus treasuries. Or we'll see central bank digital currencies with strong monetary policy guarantees more easily chip away at the USD lead. The game theory here is for the US to ban its alternative or buy in as a life raft. The former won't work for long. The latter must. Section 5.12. DCEP. To be perfectly honest with you, I have spent approximately 15 minutes reading up on central bank digital currencies this year. 
I read and heard what I needed to several years ago when the concept was first introduced, and ever since, every headline I've seen essentially boils down to, wow, this is great. We can fully surveil citizens' financial transactions and bring rates negative when needed. No me gusta. China's DCEP offers a special sort of hellscape, social credit scores for the win. And you'll notice this is one of the only times I'm referencing them in this report because otherwise I don't view anything crypto related in China as interesting. I would also like to not be imprisoned if I ever travel to Hong Kong again, so better to stay relatively mum on Chinese geopolitics. China is going to roll out its DCEP in time for the Winter Olympics in a few months. And my fear is that the major Western governments will view this rollout as an incredible success and attempt to emulate the new product as quickly as they can. Project off. They will fail, of course, because those with the technical acumen to pull a project like this off, Facebook's, scratch that, Meta's, Libra, scratch that, Novi, are reviled by our government leaders versus aligned and partnered with them. DCEP, as with all CCP crypto policy, is ultimately designed to eliminate leaks in the country's capital controls. One analyst says DCEP will reduce capital flight to Macau by $600 billion. My biggest fear is that this is just step one in a long-term move to displace the dollar as an exportable reserve currency. If China is able to create a two-tier DCEP payment system, one that facilitates pseudonymous circulation abroad and fully surveillable transaction monitoring at home, it would function similarly to something like Zcash. Only rather than a shielded pool of Z addresses and a transparent pool of T addresses, you could have two transplant pools of RMB, a foreign pool with surveillance at the point of interaction with the Chinese state, and a fully unshieldable pool of domestic RMB where CCP authorities hold the second keys. In other words, DCEP could soon be the leading digital euro-dollar candidate. China is now the primary trading partner for most countries, including the EU. If they offer even a small degree of privacy in a foreign circulating digital yuan, it could be a real threat to USD's reserve paradigm. Section 5.13, Fedcoins and Western CFDCs. It's natural that the West is feeling the pressure to act. The Federal Reserve will soon release a report examining the costs and benefits of owning its own CBDC. Fortunately, this is a race that we're going to lose, and frankly, we should lose. Trajectory we are on in the U.S. and Europe includes state-run digital currency payment rails that would allow for ubiquitous transaction surveillance, censorship, and negative interest rates that steal deposits as a mechanism to enforce wealth taxes or punish savers in periods of sluggish spending. We're trying to build a shittier version of China's DCEP, but without the requisite authoritarian values to pull it off in the West. We'd have no competitive advantages. They would move faster with better coordination and enforceability of adoption and start with a larger trade network. Our only interesting advantages, respect for privacy, openness, a commitment to rule of law, etc., would be more or less absent from a CBDC design, while a CBDC would further deputize our payments companies to surveil customers even as it threatens to disintermediate them. Snowden calls them CFDCs. The F is for fascist. And I like that framing. Modern governments have not been good stewards of the public's trust. 
It would be insane not to fight their efforts to install themselves into 50% of all transactions, especially when the government, subject to court checks and balances, can already act as an effective two of three multi-sig signer in modern bank accounts, and even more especially when better alternatives are already present. During testimony before the Senate Banking Committee, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell seems to agree. He told the committee he remained legitimately undecided as to whether the benefits of a CBDC would outweigh its potential risks and offered that a better solution might simply involve the cleaner regulation of stablecoins. 5.14. USDC and Brother Jeremy. When I started writing this report, I didn't have Jeremy Allaire may be the world's savior in my outline. But hear me out. Actually, go watch Jeremy rap first, then hear me out. The... Jeremy is Crypto Dollar Jesus thesis in four parts. Number one, we should rally around liquid, well-regulated stablecoins that are integrated across the crypto ecosystem, and Circles USDC and Paxos are the only serious contenders today. Number two, USC is the only stablecoin interoperable already between Binance, Coinbase, and Kraken, and Uobi, and OKX, and it is a stronger DeFi bridge versus Paxos. To absorb market share from Tether, the winning stablecoin must be ubiquitous, and USDC is an order of magnitude larger than Paxos. 3. Our alternatives as a country are to watch DCEP replace the dollar as global reserve, outcompete China with our own full surveillance currency, I don't predict a kind public response, or rally around fully reserved, well-regulated stablecoins. 4. If the dollar loses its reserve currency status, it will be very bad for global geopolitics. I'm not sure such an epic transition of power would be peaceful. Doesn't sound so crazy anymore. There's a lot to like about USDC. It's already multi-chain, accessible on Ethereum and its Layer 2s, Solana, Algorand, and more. It's the most liquid stablecoin in DeFi. Circle releases monthly audited reports of USDC reserves from top five auditor Grant Thornton. USDC's creators, Circle and Coinbase, have street cred, having worked feverishly on building compliant crypto payments infrastructure since 2012. Circle may also benefit from the public company halo effect once it lists via SPAC and adds nearly $500 million in additional cash to its balance sheet. Financial inclusion and humanitarian aid is at all a priority for this administration. Circle has also done some legwork there already. With the U.S. government, USDC is one of the most promising currencies that balances broad, affordable payment access to underserved communities and legal and regulatory compliance. 5.15. When Paxos met Novi. Paxos has emerged as the backbone for institutional entrance into the stablecoin market. If regulators think Circle is playing too fast and loose in DeFi, there's always an alternative. This year, Paxos deepened its partnership with PayPal by integrating with Venmo. They teamed up with MasterCard, they began powering crypto trading on interactive brokers, and then there was the real prize, the Guatemalan pilot launch with Facebook's Novi Wallet. Even if Novi plans to eventually move over to its DM currency, the process may take years and is by no means guaranteed. Paxos USDP could explode in size and volumes in the meantime as Novi marches against an ambitious roadmap, one that could have an immediate disruptive impact on less scrupulous financial services providers. As I wrote last year, the U.S. will have a proliferation of non-bank financial crypto dollars, years before we see an iota of progress on a similar scale central bank digital currency. 
We will win if we continue to lean into that lead, especially since stablecoins are, in many ways, the perfect reflection of our inability to innovate within the regulated financial system. The byproduct of our original sin, excluding crypto companies from banking services. If you still doubt that regulated stablecoins are our future, then you have a homework assignment. Send one wire and one stablecoin transaction this week.